Our scripture reading is from Colossians verse 23 through 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, nor that from the Lord you receive their inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. As we open God's word, uh, would you join me in prayer? We need his help, uh, and so I'd like to pray for us before we dive in. Lord, before this world's days even began, your word was in the beginning, and it was with you and it was you. The mystery of that brings us to our knees, yet today you allow us to open your word and know you better, so we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us hearts open to your spirit as we seek you. Amen. I will never forget the first time when my boss absolutely terrified me. And I'm not talking about Bill. (laughs) Although, no, 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 I'm not talking about Bill. It was the summer after my freshman year of college, and I landed a job at a company that my uncle worked for. They produced extension cords, light bulbs, and so on. I worked in this massive warehouse as an inventory specialist. I think most of you can probably translate what that means. Essentially, I manually counted and recounted the thousands of locations of inventory in this warehouse, and if there was a big discrepancy between what was actually in the location versus what the computer system said, I tried to find out why that was. So scintillating work, really. And one day, I was in the office trying to find some of the missing inventory, and my boss came in off of the warehouse floor, and he was engaged in a screaming match, and I I mean like screaming match with another employee. And they were not using nice words. They had gotten into it over something on the warehouse floor, and here I am, 19 years old. This is really like, quote, my first real job, and I am just terrified. They're going back and forth, back and forth, and forth until my boss's boss finally pulled them into his office to try to work through the conflict. As you can imagine, I was terrified. I had never seen that side of my boss before, and from that day on, you think I probably watched my interactions with him a little bit more closely? Bosses can make or break jobs, can't they? If you have a good boss, even a hard job, can be manageable. And the reverse is also true. If you have a good job but a bad boss, so many times that's a struggle. And as I look back on my jobs, not just the one in the warehouse, but every job I've had, I find that what's consistently true is that who I worked for could make or break my joy. Who I worked for could make or break my joy. And that's why one of the most encouraging and yet also frustrating passages in all of the Bible is Colossians 3, verses 23 through 24, which Anaya just read for us. Listen to those verses again. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Let me give you the bottom line of these verses in four words. God is your boss. God is your boss. If you are a Christian, you work for God. And this is encouraging, and yet it's also frustrating at the same time, isn't it? If God is our boss, then why is our work so difficult? If God is our boss, then why does our work often seem meaningless? 
If God is our boss, if we work for God, then why does our work, whether paid or unpaid, so often not turn out the way we hope? Why is there so much heartbreak in our work, whether it's raising kids or sitting in a cubicle at the office? These questions, and I believe that we have all asked them, or we are asking them right now, maybe this morning, you're asking those questions. They reveal the disconnect between the words of Paul in the book of Colossians and our daily experience. We need help. We need help to truly understand what it means when Paul says in Colossians that we work for God. And honestly, that disconnect is a large part of the reason why we are preaching this series titled Neighborly Love. We've been in it for a few weeks now. And we need to see that one of the primary ways that we love our neighbor is through our work, through our contribution, through what we spend most of our lives doing. Too often we think that loving our neighbor only applies to compassion, helping the sick, sick, being nice to people, and so on. And those things are good, of course, but like Bill talked about a couple of weeks ago, we also have to grow, not just in our compassion, but in our capacity. We have to love our neighbors through our work. So let's get at this. What does it mean that we work for God? How do we work for God? Well, the author of Colossians, the Apostle Paul, he knew that the Christians in the church at Colossae were either familiar with or were becoming familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And if there's one place in the entire Bible that gives practical handles and advice for how we work for God, it's the book of Proverbs. We can't forget that Paul's letters, his writings in the New Testament, are always undergirded by the whole of the Old Testament. As a rabbi, Paul had an incredibly deep and rich understanding of the front half of our Bible. They always inform what he's writing in the New Testament. And so this morning, we're going to turn to Proverbs and spend the bulk of our time there. We're going to turn to Proverbs to unlock what Paul meant when he said, God is your boss. And as we'll see, Proverbs consistently pushes back on the way that you and I define our world, the way that we think about success, what satisfies, what boundaries and ethical standards we live by. If we are going to truly work for God, then he is going to have to redefine life for us. As we turn to Proverbs, we're going to see that as our boss, God redefines the status quo He redefines satisfaction, and he redefines success. Redefines the status quo, redefines satisfaction, and redefines success. First, as our boss, God redefines the status quo. This is probably no surprise to anyone, but God has a very different status quo than the world that you and I live in. God redefines our understanding of what is normal and okay, what is right and what is wrong. I mean, intuitively, we sort of know this, right? What is normal and accepted in our culture isn't always the right thing. For instance, by and large, our culture has made a God out of winning at all costs. That's what's normal, isn't it? That's the status quo. 
So what if the Patriots let air out of a few balls or, or if a baseball slugger juices up? Everyone's doing it, and that's what it takes to win. But what happens if we build an entire economic system on this ethic of winning at all costs? What happens if we build an economy around this status quo? The results are disastrous. Of course, the 2008 housing crash is going to happen because it was all about short-term wins. Businesses will take advantage of consumers and employees, and consumers will consume too much of the wrong things. Or consider the horror of payday lending, which I would argue is legal extortion, primarily of the poor and disenfranchised. The premise of payday lending is that you give a two-week loan with someone's future paycheck as collateral. And the average loan is only $300, but because of hidden fees and crazy interest rates, the person will end up needing to pay back about $3,000 on the loan. $300 for $3,000. Can we just sit in that for a moment? And the other difficult truth, or one of the other difficult truths of payday lending is that oftentimes those institutions are the only financial institutions in those neighborhoods, making it nearly impossible for these people to turn anywhere else to obtain money or get a loan. Payday lending is, quote, a winning investment, but it also destroys communities and people in poverty. There are more payday lending institutions in Kansas City than McDonald's, Wendy's, and Starbucks combined. And when I first heard that, I didn't even think it was possible. But if you drive around our city and start looking for them, you'll see that it is. Or consider for us to cut corners to get ahead, to very gently stab coworkers or competitors in the back, to only tell half-truths to our customers or our clients, or to cheat on that test at school. It's all normal. It's all the status quo, but none of it is right. And because we work for God, he challenges this status quo. He pushes back and he redefines it. Consider Proverbs 11, verses one through four. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. When pride comes, then disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. In the ancient Near East economy, a tool like this was a necessity. You'd weigh out what was purchased or sold and then charge accordingly. But it wouldn't be that hard to have a weight that said 10 pounds when in reality it was only 9.5 pounds. No one would be the wiser and you would save a half pound of product with every transaction. But God, as a boss, says, don't do that. It's an abomination. It's pride, it's crookedness, it's treacherous, I hate it. Now some of you may look at these verses and say, wait a second, I know lots of prideful people who aren't disgraced. I know a whole lot of people who act in a treacherous manner who aren't destroyed. 
What's going on here? We have to remember and keep in mind that the book of Proverbs is not an ironclad set of promises. Rather, it is a collection of wisdom sayings. Essentially, the book of Proverbs, from start to finish, is saying life normally works out this way. It's a list of boundaries and warnings. Warnings that if you cross certain boundaries, then certain things will probably happen to you. And it's a set of encouragements that if you live within those boundaries, then you will probably be blessed. For example, what if you jump over a fence that says, beware of dog, and nothing happens to you? Maybe you'll be fine. Or maybe the dog just ate the last guy that jumped over the fence, and so he's too full to bother about you. Proverbs functions like that warning sign. You can be prideful and not be disgraced, just like you can jump a fence and a dog not attack you. But it's probably coming for you. Just wait. And the author of this passage reminds us that this type of status quo winning at all costs, it has eternal and ultimate consequences. Look again at verse four. It will not save you from wrath. Whether in this life or on the day of wrath, living by your own status quo is going to come back to bite you. If your status quo is about you and about winning at all costs, then you lose. The book of Proverbs contains numerous warnings about greed and oppression, about taking advantage of others for personal benefit. It may be normal, but it isn't right. And this is absolutely essential as we think about life in a free market economy. A couple weeks ago, we called the free market economy the best broken system that we have. But a free market economy works best with virtuous people, which ought to scare us a little bit, right? Look again at the text. Words like humility, integrity, righteousness, these are God's highest values. This is what God wants from us as our boss. So let me ask you, is there anything you won't do to achieve your goal? Is there anything you won't do to achieve your goal? To get the best grades, to be the best on the field, to raise the perfect kids, to increase profits, or to get the next promotion? In what ways do you tip the scales in your favor? What lines are you willing to cross? And if there are lines you're willing to cross, then who are you really working for? Friends, let God as your boss redefine the status quo. And when you do let God redefine your status quo, then we can do our work honestly and well because honest, good work, Proverbs 11 says, is God's delight. Don't miss that. When you do your work with integrity, no matter how mundane it is, and I didn't know this when I was counting boxes in the warehouse. I totally had missed this, and there was a large Sunday to Monday gap for me. I didn't catch this. But when you do your work with integrity, no matter how mundane it is, the God of the universe smiles. 
Think about that the next time you change a diaper or do your homework or serve a difficult customer. God delights in honest, good work well done. If God is your boss, then he redefines your status quo. But that's not all. As our boss, God also redefines satisfaction. Redefines satisfaction. Our culture has made a God out of winning at all costs, but it also seems to me that in our culture we worship instant satisfaction. Instant satisfaction. In our culture, we have to have it, and we have to have it now. I'm satisfied by McDonald's breakfast, but it's not good enough that I can't have it after 10.30 a.m. Give me my Egg McMuffin all day, right? Enough people yelled about that and tweeted about that that now you can get McDonald's breakfast all day long because we have to have it, and we have to have it now. I think the comedian Louis C.K. captures this reality of our culture better than anyone. A couple of years ago, he was on Conan O'Brien's late night show, and he made the brilliant observation that everything is amazing, but no one is happy. As a culture, we complain about everything. On the flight out to do the show, he tells of how the guy next to him got all huffy when the Wi-Fi went out on the plane. Can anyone see themselves doing this, right? You get on the plane, you got a lot to get done, got to catch up on emails, Wi-Fi goes down. Consider this, we are flying 500 miles an hour, 30,000 feet in the air, surfing the internet via space, and we get mad if it's just a little slow or if it goes out. His comment after telling this story was brilliant. He says, how quickly the world owes you something that was literally just invented. (laughs) On the surface, we don't have to wait at all for satisfaction in our culture which raises the same question that we asked about the status quo. What happens when we build an economy out of immediate satisfaction? An economy where businesses, governments, schools all operate on the premise that people must be satisfied and satisfied now. As you can imagine, the results aren't great. Let me give you just one example. A book called The Gift has just come out, which details what happened after Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, gave $100 million to Newark, New Jersey's public schools. And while Zuckerberg's generosity should be praised, he put a stipulation to his gift that the goal for massive change to Newark's failing school system was five years. Five years to overhaul an entire city's school system. Five years to reverse decades of issues and brokenness. Well, what do you think happened? Politicians saw this moment to make an instant jump in their polls. Unions used the moment for an instant raise for their members, and so on. Ultimately, the demand for overhaul in only five years suffocated the process. We want to be wowed. We want instant change. This is how our culture approaches satisfaction. I want it and I want it now. But remember, God, as our boss, redefines satisfaction. Listen to Proverbs verses, or chapter 21, verse 5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. 
Hastiness leads to ruin. Instant satisfaction leads to ruin. And and I'll be the first to say that this runs so contrary to what I typically think. Too often, I think that great change and great accomplishment can come quickly. But what's actually true is that the very best things in life take time, years or decades even. The best gains, the best investments, the best life looks long-term, not short-term. Long-term, not short-term. The book of Proverbs and the situation with the Newark School District warns us against the dangers of hastiness. The New York Times reviewed this book, The Gift, and it pointed out something fascinating. It wasn't just the five-year timeline that ruined the project, but also the fact, the mind-blowing fact, that the parents and teachers were not deeply consulted on how to bring about this change. Those running the project thought that was most, thought what was most needed was to pour a lot of money on top of the problems. But what makes school systems, private or public, great and successful is teachers, parents, and the efforts of local communities pouring in faithfully day after day, month after month, year after year. But that takes diligence, not haste. Faithfulness, not instant satisfaction. And and I hope this is an encouragement to those of you who in some way or another serve a school system teachers, parents, volunteers. Not only does the book of Proverbs say that your diligent work is important, but the New York Times says that too. And really, this should be an encouragement to all of us. No matter what our work is, satisfaction comes through diligent, faithful work. It doesn't come instantly. Somehow, in the busyness, we've forgotten that life is lived daily. You don't wake up one day and find out that you have accidentally lived a satisfied, fruitful, diligent life. Does anybody remember the movie Click with Adam Sandler? Came out several years ago. The basic plot was that he came upon a remote control that allowed him to fast forward to the parts of life that he didn't want to experience, the difficult, hard moments, the day in, day out, diligent grind. How do you think that ended? with him crying in the rain. That's actually how the movie ended. (laughs) It's kind of a silly movie, but with a powerful point. Satisfaction comes through diligent living and work. We can't fast forward life. It comes from faithfulness. The faithfulness of changing diapers, filling out yet another report at work, diligently counting all of those boxes in that location, and listening patiently to a coworker. Years of, quote, small work that leads to a satisfied life, leads to change, leads to flourishing families and flourishing communities. We want to be the person making the flashy $100 million gift because we think that that will finally satisfy us. We want the publicity. We want the instant gratification. But Proverbs leads us in a different direction. Diligence patience. Look at Proverbs chapter 12, verse 14. From the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good, 
and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. The diligent work of your hands comes back to you in satisfaction. If God is your boss, because if he is, then he'll redefine satisfaction for you. He'll cause you to look long-term, not short-term. Is he doing that in your life? Let me ask you, are you striving for short-term or long-term satisfaction? Are you taking the long view, saying no to the temptation of immediacy? Do you deny yourself anything? Are you helping your kids learn patience, diligence, and hard work? Or do you just rescue them and give them whatever they want? Do they see who it is that you're working for? We crave the immediate and the right now, but only the diligent are satisfied. Well, throughout this series, we've been trying to tell stories of regular people who are living these things out. And right now, we have a beautiful story of faithful diligence from someone at our Olathe campus. Let's watch. Most of the day, um, I work around plants and trees. I work at a wholesale nursery um, out west of Olathe. And so I'm in charge of keeping track of all the health of the plants and make sure that they're sellable and uh, working day out outside. And, and it's just a great time to um, be out in God's creation. My name is Emily Frazier, and I've been going to Christ Community for three years. Even though sometimes we don't acknowledge that we work hard, we are a family. I work with some folks from Central America, so they're teaching me Spanish while I'm out there too. So it's kind of fun um, becoming bilingual and um, really becoming good friends with everyone there at work. Oftentimes we um, support each other. For example, I had a blood drive in honor of my sister in June and I had a couple of my coworkers come to that, and I just felt, I just felt really awesome about that. And for a while there, there'd be a couple of weeks where I just wouldn't hear anything at all. Like I don't need a pat in the back every day, but I kind of came to realize, okay, you're not trying to please them. Like you're, you need to be working for, for God. Since I get up early, I get to um, miss most of the traffic. And I also get to see the sunrise, and it's just a good time to kind of collect my thoughts and um, pray and just get kind of ready for the day. So that's, that's a boost anyway. You know, growing up on the cattle ranch, it, to me, I've learned to be a better steward of the land and um, acknowledging that this was God built this, and I feel being out in the nursery with all the trees, knowing that, hey, you know, God created this, and this is something, a gift that we can give to customers in Kansas City, Topeka, Lawrence, um, to be able to share and keep that, um, God's beauty, spread it around. Isn't that beautiful? And speaking actually of faithful, diligent work, like what Emily's doing as an arborist, 
These videos that you've been seeing are actually the result of someone here at the Brookside campus's faithful, diligent work. Oliver Hughes, who plays uh, in the worship band with John sometimes, works for a company that does video production, and he has been making or helping make these videos. Faithful, diligent work. I could never do that. Right? That's beautiful. Never do what Emily does and never do what Oliver does to make a beautiful video that tells the story. Faithful, diligent work leads to satisfaction. And finally, if God is your boss, he'll not only redefine the status quo, he'll not only redefine satisfaction, but he will also redefine success. We've seen how our culture worships winning at all cost and instant satisfaction And you don't have to look far to see that we also worship success. In our culture, success is money, power, respect. We love these things, don't we? We live in a world that says you are what you have. You're successful when you have stuff. But God's definition of success, it's different. He redefines it. Look at Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. You see, this master gives us a brand new bottom line. Yes, profits still matter, of course. We've talked a lot about that in this series. We're commanded to be fruitful and to help others through our work. And if we do that well, there's a good chance that we're going to benefit economically with profits. That's a good thing. Because it means that you can help even more people through generosity and through the creation of more jobs. Yes, of course, make a profit. But that's not where the bottom line ends. Tons of profits is not God's definition of success. God's definition of success is more about, as we see in this proverb, more about what we give away. It's not about profits only. People and the planet also matter deeply. Prophets, people, and planet. A new threefold bottom line. Relationships and justice. The people you work with and for. Your classmates, your kids, your coworkers or employees, your customers and clients. Every opportunity is an opportunity to love those neighbors and to care for the world that God has made, to cultivate and keep. So let me ask you how do you measure success? What would it look like for you to have a successful retirement or to be successful at school? How do you measure success with your closest friends or with your kids? How do you measure success at school or on the playground? How will you know when you've been successful at work? Our world defines success by what we get. Money, power, applause. God defines it by what we give. And he sets the example for us, doesn't he? God never asks us to do something that he was unwilling to do himself. For God gave up the riches of heaven to rescue us, to accomplish the greatest work, our salvation. My big idea, my big idea this morning is that God is your boss. God is your boss. But you know, that's not quite right. Oh, of course, God's in charge, don't get me wrong. And he redefines everything for us, sure, absolutely. 
But listen to Colossians 3 one more time. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Friends, what employee receives an inheritance? Employees get paychecks, not inheritances. Who gets an inheritance? That's right, daughters and sons. God isn't just your boss. If you belong to him, you don't just punch a clock and hope for some promotion. You're not waiting to squeak by with passing grades or a decent performance review. No, you are his beloved son or daughter. What kind of boss becomes a dad, adopts us into his family? We're not servants but sons, inheriting the riches of his everlasting kingdom, which never wears out or disappoints. Church, this is what Jesus has done through his life, death, and resurrection, which means that if you belong to him, you've already passed every test, received the highest promotion, and are fully loved and fully accepted in the gospel. Listen, I feel like a failure at least half the time. And the other half of the time, I think I'm a rock star, which shows just how much of a failure I really am. Failure as a husband, as a father, as your pastor, as a Christian. Any other failures out there this morning? You are a failure. That's the bad news, and so am I. But if you belong to God, then you have a loving father who looks at you and sees Jesus, and he delights in you. I can think of no greater motivation no greater joy, no bigger reason to let God flip the status quo, shake up my short-sighted goals for satisfaction, and unhinge my shallow definition of success. We work for God, our loving Father. Who can ask for anything better than that? Would you pray with me? Father, in heaven. Thank you that we work for you. You truly are the best boss. Do this redefinition work in our hearts and in our lives, Lord, and please help us to live for you and work for you more and more every single day. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.